Bishops against Pope Francis. Another statement has been released in opposition to the Roman pontiff in his teachings in Desiderio Desideravi. Today, we're going to examine this document, and we're going to look at some of the responses to the document and show how this document follows the principles of Catholic truth and charity regarding rebuking of superiors on the One Peter Five podcast. Jesus is King. Welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, rebuilding Christendom, rebuilding Catholic culture and tradition. I'm Timothy Flanders, editor in chief of One Peter Five. And today is the feast of Saints Cosmas and Damien. This is the week, uh, the 16th Sunday after Pentecost. And uh, as always, you can get this uh, wonderful calendar that I use for my children. It's a great catechetical tool uh, put out by Liturgy of the Home. So liturgyofthehome.com. And this week we have the great feast of Michaelmas, which takes place on this Thursday. If you're completing the St. Michael's fast, it's a great, or if you ha- if you haven't completed the fast, it's a great time to fast. You could fast today and tomorrow for the vigil to offer up to God penance in our time. That is our time is a time of penance. And what greater champion can we find but Saint Michael the Archangel? So it's a great feast, a great time to have fun with the kids at the Flanders. We are excited for the Satan pinata. Uh, Build a pinata, stuff it with candy, give your kids bats and swords, and then have them yell, the Lord rebuke you, and smash the Satan pinata and get candy. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So uh, if you go to 1peter5.com, we also have other articles, or we have a Forgotten Customs of Michaelmas from Matthew Pleasy, a great article to take a look at. Uh, it's also a, here's a, there's a new book out, translation uh, from Tan by St. Eliosha's Gonzaga, Meditations on the Holy Angels. It's something that we can often forget in our time of difficulty that we live in. We can also often forget about the Holy Angels. And remembering the Holy Angels is a great comfort to us. It's a great help to us through the graces that they bring to us and the help that they provide in the spiritual life. So take a look at this book as well. Uh, and that's all linked below. As well, let's, uh, as always, we always ask for your support because we're a nonprofit. We need your support. We've got our bills to pay. So you can go to 1peter5.com slash donate and you can provide anything that we can, anything that you can offer to us. That'd be great. Very helpful. So uh, if you take a look at the links below, we have the document played out here, uh, which is uploaded to LifeSite News. Uh, I sent an email to you, Dr. Hickson, to request my name to be added. I don't think it was added yet, but I do. Uh, I would do add, definitely add my name to this. And we'll talk about how this follows the principles of judgment. Now, real quickly, we talked about the trad response to apparent papal paganism a couple weeks ago. And in that show, we talked about the principles of Catholic judgment. And namely, there is the, the judgment of charity which is where we need to take the actual words and actions of our brother, our neighbor, whoever he may be, 
And we need to take them and, and resolve doubts and doubtful matters and things that appear false. We need to always give the benefit of the doubt in all cases, unless there is manifest evidence to the contrary. And the reason for this is because charity impels us to always think the best of our brother, even if we're making an error about our brother, because even if we make an error, so say Thomas, we're not committing any sin against charity. We're merely in error. So it's okay. And this goes for the Roman pontiff most of all. Now, unfortunately, we're in a situation where there are so many words and deeds of the Roman pontiff, Pope Francis, which would indicate manifest evidence to the contrary. But even more so, there's complications regarding the dubia of Vatican I. Now, I want to highlight a few things in this statement, which I think are very good. Just a summary really quickly. The summary, the basic statement of this, this uh, document, it's called The Teaching of the Catholic Faith on the Reception of the Holy Eucharist. And what's notable about this is that Bishop Strickland of Tyler, Texas, has signed this document. This is, I believe, this is the very first document of this kind that he has been involved in. Bishop Athanasius Snyder has signed many of these documents over the years. Uh, it also includes Bishop Rene Henry Gracida and Bishop Robert Mutzertz from the uh, Bishop of Netherlands. So there's four total bishops signing on to this statement. The basic statement is that it's indicating a passage from Desiderio Desideravi, paragraph five, which speaks of the fact that, quote, all that is required is the wedding garment of faith, which comes from the hearing of his word, referencing Romans 10, 17. And this is juxtaposed in the document with the anathema from Trent, which states, if anyone says, quoting the, the Council of Trent, if anyone says that faith alone is sufficient preparation for receiving the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, let him be anathema. Keyword there is faith alone. As you know, the controversy regarding Martin Luther had to do with his doctrine that salvation comes by faith alone. Martin Luther's doctrine was that the, if you read Exurge Domine from Leo X, the various propositions that Luther held, one of them was that in every good work, a just man sins. He had this idea of concupiscence, wherein concupiscence itself is a sin. So if you're tempted, you're sinning. You're always constantly sinning. So you can you your works cannot possibly please God, said Luther. As so you're constantly sinning, in fact, you have no free will, says Luther in his in his his work, the bondage of the will. You have no free will. You can't but sin. So therefore, faith is sort of this unwork to Luther. And so you have faith alone. That's the only thing that can please God is this faith, which is somehow not a work, according to Luther. So Trent anathematized Luther and said, no, you cannot have faith alone because the scriptures are quite clear. In fact, the only time that the phrase faith alone appears in the scripture is in the epistle of James when it says, not faith alone. So when the Roman pontiff comes along and says, all that is required is the wedding garment of faith, 
and the writers of the document quote the original Italian to that effect. Now, what I want to highlight here is the document follows the judgment of charity, and here's how. The document says this, the natural meaning of these words is that the only requirement for a Catholic to worthily receive the Eucharist is the possession of the virtue of faith. The apostolic letter is silent on this essential topic of repentance for sin. So it's saying that the natural meaning of the words. Now, later on, it uses the phrase, it, it quotes from his, later on his Pope Francis's Angelus address. And it says, in the context of Pope Francis's other words and actions, this suggests that renunciation of sin is not necessary for one's reception of the Eucharist. So it's quoted in this, this address in which Pope Francis speaks about the communion of Judas and uses that as speaking about the fact that we receive the Eucharist, the Blessed Sacrament, even though we are sinners. But this suggests this Lutheran interpretation of Desiderio Desideravi. Now, why is this the judgment of charity? It's because the, the writers of this document are simply saying, this suggests heresy. The natural meaning suggests heresy. This document is not asserting that Pope Francis is perhaps culpable or of, of a malicious will. It's not trying to make a judgment on his heart in, in all these different things. It's saying these words suggest something. So it is a reasonable and charitable thing to simply point out that this thing subject this thing suggests a heresy. And there is a perfectly easy way to resolve this situation, and that is to answer this dubia. This is another really a, a, a single dubium, really. It's a single dubium, and it's very simple to answer such a thing. As there's been very other such things offered to under the Francis pontificate. So it is simply saying that these things suggest this heresy. Now, one common objection of trads when they do such things as this is that they are relying on their private judgment. So therefore, they are judging the Pope. As our Lord said, judge not lest ye be judged. The measure that you mete out will be measured to you. And so we need to see we shouldn't judge our brother's heart, whether that's the Holy Father or any of our Catholic brethren and anyone we should, shouldn't presume to judge upon their heart, their intentions and all these different things, unless we have some, some manifest evidence of it. Because then that's going to be judged to us. When we unmercifully and harshly judge our brother, God himself will judge us with that same harshness. So we need to be merciful as much as we can. And that's why I think that this document does a very good job with this language to simply say that this suggests something. And that's a scandal to the faith. And that's a very serious matter. But what is promulgated at Trent is not a private opinion. It is a publicly, manifestly, uh, it's, a, it's an anathema given by the Council of Trent, which is meant to be understood by all for all time. So that's not a, some private thing that one needs some sort of esoteric 
Gnostic interpretation to try to draw out some some meaning from the mystery of Trent. No, Trent is is a magisterial teaching, and it's trying to make clear something. So you don't have to rely on your private judgment as some sort of dubious matter. We are taught the basics. This is a basic teaching to the first communicants, a very, very basic teaching. One of the most basic teachings that you, that you teach the kids. You teach We teach children across the world that they have to go to confession if they're in mortal sin before they receive the Holy Sacrament. It's a very basic teaching. And this is contained in the Council of Trent. So you don't have to be a PhD. You, can, you just have to be a basic, ordinary Catholic to understand this very basic thing. It's not difficult. It doesn't require a lot of private judgment of any kind. So then when we look at the documents of the Holy Father, his teaching is also meant to be understood readily. It shouldn't be esoteric and difficult to understand because the whole purpose of an encyclical or any, or any such universal teaching like this is that it will be understood by all or as many as possible. It's translated in multiple languages. The language used should bring clarity. And you don't have to be a PhD. You don't have to you know, rely on this immense private judgment to try to understand the basic meaning of the text. So when the when the document says the natural meaning of these words is simply saying, hey, this is prima facie at face value. This indicates this thing. If we can't draw basic conclusions from the text, we're undermining the basics of human reason of language, of, of, of even the, the abilities of the magisterium to even communicate anything. Now, let me look at a few of these. Uh, one of the, uh, let's see, let me bring up the, one of the responses to the document came from Dr. Robert Fastigi. And uh, Robert Fastigi is a, an esteemed scholar editor of the latest edition of Denziger. Um, and uh, I've talked with him personally. He's a, obviously a pious and erudite man of God. And I think his comments are very measured as well, very charitable. Um, but he seems to make an assumption about the dubia of Vatican II, or uh, Vatican I, rather, sorry. In the, exactly the, the wordings that we have brought out already in our article let, let me just go let me just go to that real quick actually so if you go to the this should be the one two three four fifth link i believe below um so so if, if you look there are certain phrases in vatican one which are ambiguous namely that the holy see is untainted by any error and that the Pope is endowed with the charism of truth and unfailing faith. These are phrases that are that don't have exact theological precise meaning in the text of Vatican I. And as a result, there are these different schools of thought that have arisen since Vatican I, which have interpreted them in this or that way based on the dubia of Vatican I, the, the questions of the propositions regarding papal infallibility that have not been resolved, okay? So if you read through this entire article, we go through all these different things. But essentially, there's these different um, schools of schools of thought, and only the only the top three are really kind of allowed. Um, 
I'm not going to go into all the details, but you can read the article. But Dr. Fastigi seems to, and, and others such who follow his train of thought, seem to take a papal maximalist view of Vatican I, or perhaps hyperpaperalist, in that they believe that these ambiguous phrases that I just mentioned indicate that there is a charism, there's an infallibility that goes beyond ex cathedra, that is protecting something like Desiderio Desideravi. And so if we start with the assumption that all of these things are protected, that they can't be an error based on our faith in Vatican I, well, then we're obviously going to come to, con to, to the conclusion that it can't be an error, even if it looks like an error at face value, because we're starting with this assumption. Now, it appears, I'm not sure if this is truly the case. I don't know if Dr. Fasigi would agree with this or not, but it does appear that his position starts with that assumption. So he, he quotes those very phrases in his response that uh, I just gave, those, those ambiguous phrases. And he then concludes, he's, he, he says, quote, such an accusation itself, meaning the, the document's accusation that uh, Pope Francis is contradicting Trent, seems to contradict what another ecumenical council, namely Vatican I, teaches when it says that the see of Peter always remain untainted by any error and the charism of truth is never family faith, et cetera, et cetera. Now, to his credit, Dr. Vestigi also uses the term seems. And this is, this is the proper way that we should be addressing one another as Catholic brethren, because we are just dealing with things that seem. The document is saying that Pope Francis seems to contradict Trent. Vestigi is coming along and saying that statement seems to contradict Vatican I. Again, there's an easy way to resolve this. The magisterium can speak. That's, a, that's the easiest way to resolve this. Magisterium can clarify. Let the magisterium clarify that these words should not be understood in any other way but the orthodox sense and not in any Lutheran sense. And then if, if anyone does, let them be anathema. Perfect. Everything's resolved. But that's exactly what we don't have. Now, another important thing that um, Dr. Fasigi brings up is that he brings up the context. Now, this is where I think that the the analysis gets deeper and goes into a good place, I think. Um, and this is also what another, another, another a trad perspective from uh, Jonathan Arrington, which I think, I think this is a good article as well. This is a critique of the document, okay? And what Mr. Arrington brings out is the fact that Pope Francis cites these other texts and these other passages before and after that number five, which seems to indicate a Lutheran understanding. And Mr. Arrington points out that the traditional understanding of these other texts does include faith and formed faith. Um, and Dr. Fastigi points out the same thing. And he says, well, the context here is these other aspects given in, for example, Revelation 714, the church tailors such garment, the wedding, the, the garment of faith, to fit each one with the whiteness of a garment bathed in the blood of the lamb, end quote. Obviously, the bathing of the blood of Jesus is washing away sin. And the traditional understanding of these passages refers to faith 
working through charity, which is obviously not the Lutheran understanding, which contradicts scripture. And, but Dr. Fastigi says something interesting here. He says that we need to give it, give Pope Francis's document the natural meaning because the natural meaning of the context. Because if we did the same thing for scripture, then we'd, we'd come up with a bunch of problems. And then he cites a number of scriptural difficulties, uh, which obviously exist in scripture. However, I, in, in res with respect to uh, Dr. Vestigi, I do think that this is, we're talking about different things here. When we talk about the judgments and the, the sort of hermeneutic that we approach the Holy Scripture, we're talking about a sacred text in, inspired infallibly by the Holy Spirit, which contains divine mysteries, which in, in many places are not clear. And that's the whole point. That's why we, 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 we have tradition as well as Scripture against Luther, once again. Um, a magisterial statement by its very nature is meant to draw out the mystery of scripture and make it clear. So we don't give the same benefit of the doubt as we gave to scripture, which is entirely infallible and errant. We don't give that same benefit of the doubt or we don't expect, you know, all these uh, interpretive principles to resolve difficulties like this in a magisterial statement. There is an assumption, we should have an assumption that the magisterial statement is not in error, but unless we are assuming a papal maximalist view that infallibility extends beyond ex cathedra, we cannot necessarily conclude that any particular passage does not contain any error. And this is what it seems Dr. Vestigi is assuming. Um, the, now, the other point raised by Mr. Arrington, which is also mentioned by Dr. Vestigi, is the issue, which I think is a very important point, and the point that we raised in the article on, on the Dubia Vatican I, and that is a, a form of trad neo-Jansenism. I term it neo-Jansenism because... It's an attitude of rebellion against the magisterium. And this is something that is entirely not Catholic. It is really poisonous. And this is something that Father Ripperger mentions as one of the problems in the trad movement. And this is what Mr. Arrington points out in his article. And this is a very important point. I think as trads, we need to have the humility to have a self-criticism of our own movement and recognize that sometimes we as trads get a little bit too angry. And we do sort of have this knee-jerk reaction to everything that's said by Pope Francis or any bishop. And we immediately latch on to sort of the worst interpretation. And as I've tried to emphasize in the beginning, that's not Catholic. That's not a judgment of charity. We have to assume the best unless we have manifest evidence otherwise. You know, did Pope... I mean, there's... <laughs> when Pope Francis... Uh, dies may he rest in peace we uh we in, i intend to write an article on uh comparing his pontificate to others but also pointing out the good things that pope francis did he actually did a few good things you know um you know like granting the faculties of the sspx priests for example 
um, reversing an ex excesses regarding Eastern Catholic priests in the United States, for example. Um, so we'll talk about that. So we need to not we we need not have this this um, reaction of an attitude of rebellion. We should really have an attitude of submission. We should want to submit. If we're going to critique Pope Francis, we should be sad about that. That's a sad thing. That's a sad thing that we have to uncover the nakedness of our father. We should want to cover our na the nakedness of our father, as St. Gregory the Great says. We should want to excuse him. But St. Thomas says, if there be a scandal to the faith, we must rebuke him publicly. Um, so let me, let me get to another, a few other aspects of this. So this is the question that Vestigi brings and, and it's an important question. We need to ask each of ourselves in our examination of conscience, um, Canon 1373, we shouldn't be provoking others to hatred for the hierarchy because that's the divine constitution of the church. So when we do this, we need to be very careful. It's, it's something that we should do fearfully with fear and trembling. Um, so now John Lamont provided a, a very good response to directly to Fastigi, but it also addresses some of the issues of Arrington. And that's over at Rorate Celli. And in this, he mentions the fact that here, I, so I'll, I'll quote uh, Dr. Lamont here. He says, quote, the standard meaning of faith in Catholic theology is the faith involved in the theological virtue of faith, not the faith informed by charity that is necessary for salvation and the worthy reception of the Holy Eucharist. We cannot assume that because that is what scripture means by the wedding garment, it is what Francis means by the wedding garment. So he, he's quoting the, the fact that Vestigi points out the wedding garment, in, and this is what Arrington brings out, the, the scriptural, the, the traditional understanding of these passages is faith working by charity. But the issue is that it seems to indicate, Pope Francis's words and deeds and in this document, seems to indicate that he means it in a Lutheran sense. Lamont, Lamont points out the expression being blathed in the blood of the lamb can be understood in a Lutheran sense and is indeed a theme of many Lutheran hymns, as can be seen from examining a Lutheran hymnal. Now, I, in fact, I was raised in the ELCA Lutheran Church uh, before I came into the church, and I can certainly attest to this. And I want to comment here on the, the comments of the Roman pontiff on the joint declaration for justification between the Lutherans and the Catholics. This was in the 1990s, I think it was 1994. And in that statement, the, the statement is essentially overcoming misconceptions, essentially. Now, as I said previously, the, the fundamental issue with Luther was that he had a false understanding of concupiscence. He had a false understanding of original sin, causing him to make this idea that you're always sinning, you have no free will, all these issues. The Joint Declaration of Justification does not resolve those issues. It mere, What it merely does is it overcomes certain terminological misconceptions that Lutherans have of Catholics and Catholics have of Lutheran. You know, you maybe you have heard a Protestant say to you as a Catholic, 
you believe in earning your own salvation and working your way to heaven by your own works. And that's a misconception. That's a misunderstanding of Catholic doctrine, for example. Or we may think of Lutherans, you know, Lutherans don't believe in good doing good, any good works, you know, something like that. Well, that's also a misconception. So the joint declaration merely overcomes certain misconceptions. It does not resolve the fundamental rift between the heresy of Lutheranism as condemned by Trent and the doctrine contained in Trent. So there has this, this issue has not been resolved contrary to what the Holy Father has said. It has not been resolved between Lutherans and Catholics. And we have indications that Pope Francis seems to believe in some of this. Obviously, the, the, the main dubia, the dubia cardinals, the main thing that really blew this open years ago was regarding the Morris Laetitia and the reception of Holy Communion for the divorced and remarried. And when you look at it with a Lutheran eye, then this is not an issue. You're just receiving the Lord's Supper. And, you know, they don't believe in confession. They don't believe in these things. They believe that faith is an unwork, that you're always sinning. So, you know, this is a really, really serious issue. Um, so Lamont points out that you can understand these things in a Lutheran way. And it's not entirely clear that Pope Francis is not doing that. Once again, the easy issue is to simply let the magisterium confirm the Council of Trent. And this brings up the fact that as as it is said in Traditionus Custodis, it is trads are, are accused of weaponizing the Latin mass to undermine Vatican II. Now, there's some aspects to that that need to be discussed in greater detail, but the other issue is that the modernists are weaponizing the Novus Ordo against Trent. And this is something that Joseph Ratzker says. This is a serious issue. Since Vatican II, many prominent Catholic theologians have attempted to concede everything to Luther. The Mass is not really a sacrifice. You know, they believe that this joint declaration of justification actually overcomes these doctrinal issues, and it doesn't. So, these are very important, grave issues which have direct consequences for the salvation of souls. As the document points out, the pro-child murder Catholic politician, Nancy Pelosi, has been excommunicated by her ordinary, and she receives Holy Communion in Washington, D.C. And not only that, but in Rome, on the day that this document was released, Desiderio Desideravi. And when questioned about it, Pope Francis did not confirm Trent. He did not confirm his brethren in the faith. He did not confirm Archbishop Cordelione. So all of these things indicate they suggest a scandal to the faith. Now, is it actually a scandal to the faith? Let the Pope respond. Let the Holy Father respond and clarify. And that's something that we should all want. We should want to be wrong, basically. You know, trads, we should, we should, again, we should have this attitude where I hope I'm wrong about Pope Francis. I hope somehow 
we're all wrong that he is this, you know, orthodox champion somehow. That's what we should prefer because that's what's best for souls, obviously. But we are bound by our reason, our faith that we are taught from our first communion. We're bound by that faith in order to save our own souls. Now, I want to quote now from the Catholic Encyclopedia, and then we'll close out with this. The Catholic Encyclopedia, under the entry, St. Peter, Prince of the Apostles, speaks about the rebuke of St. Paul, of St. Peter. This is something that um, my colleague and contributing editor of 1 Peter 5, Kennedy Hall, pointed out to me. Quoting from the Catholic Encyclopedia, it says this. When St. Peter refused to eat with Gentiles in Antioch, the Catholic Encyclopedia says this. This action by St. Peter was entirely opposed to the principles and practice of Paul and might lead to confusion among the converted pagans. St. Paul addressed a public reproach to St. Peter because his contact, his conduct seemed to indicate a wish to compel the pagan converts to become Jews and accept circumcision, etc. Notice what the Catholic Encyclopedia says. St. Peter's actions only seemed to indicate. There's only a seemingly in, seeming indication here. But even something that is a public scandal, as St. Thomas says, even if you're not actually sinning, but what you do appears to be a sin, you should not do it. Because you're giving the appearance of sin and you're giving the... You're, you're giving a scandal, which is an occasion of spiritual ruin. So this document is saying, by making these statements, not only is his statements, but these actions of the Holy Father, he seems to indicate a Lutheran understanding of the Holy Communion. You know, and this, under, this undermines the faith of my own children, their own communion in the, in the Holy Sacrament. This is a very serious matter. So that, that is why these signatories, including four bishops, respectfully and reverently and with fear and trembling, offer this public rebuke to Pope Francis. And St. Thomas goes on in his commentary and says that St. Peter gave an example to superiors that if they should ever stray from the faith, they should not disdain to be rebuked by their inferiors. And so we pray that Pope Francis may follow the example of St. Peter and not spurn this. And if he is indeed Orthodox, let him simply say that and explicitly confirm his brethren in the faith. Or if he is in heresy, let him repent. And that is what we pray for. That is what we the we offer up our intentions to the Mother of God. Now, all of this brings up our cause, the lay sodality that we have formed, which is the Crusade of Eucharistic Reparation. This was called by Athanasius Snyder, and this is a lay sodality that you can join to do something. You know, we don't have a lot of power to influence even our own bishop, or maybe even our parish, or certainly not Pope Francis. But we can offer up reparation for sins committed against the Blessed Sacrament. 
whether that's liturgical abuse or receiving holy communion in the state of mortal sin, these are sins that offend Almighty God that deserve reparation. And that's what the crusade of Eucharistic reparation is all about. This is a lay sodality run by 1 Peter 5 in association with Mass of the Ages documentary and Benedictus, the traditional Catholic companion. So if you go to the link, you get the basics of what this is. The bare minimum requirement is to offer up one hour of Eucharistic reparation adoration per month, and then pray at least once a month the prayer of Eucharistic reparation written by His Excellency Bishop Schneider. And the overall plan, the intention is to make reparation and also to restore the Latin Mass, which gives glory to God, Almighty God, and Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. And the idea is to establish in every diocese a regular days of reparation and an annual day of reparation to the Blessed Sacrament. And this weekend, I will be at the CIC conference in Pittsburgh making the call for this crusade. And we'll have everyone will who takes up the cross will get this pin to wear and will be invested with the cross by His Excellency Bishop Schneider. And this will be our crusade. This is this is the movement that we promote at 1 Pier 5 that we ask you to join us in this, this lay sodality offering up reparation to Almighty God. We hope that through the prayers of the Mother of God, also it may give us grace, give graces of, of devotion and faith in the Blessed Sacrament, that we can spread faith in the real presence that has been waning and waning. So that is all we have today. Let's offer all of this to Our Lady that she can make this worthy of Almighty God. So we'll pray an Ave and we'll invoke our patrons at 1 Peter 5, namely Blessed Emperor Carl and St. Maximilian Kolbe, as well as Our Lady of Fatima. In nomine Patris et Fidei Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuum liarbus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc in hora mortis nostre. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. Blessed Emperor Carl, pray for us. Saint Maximilian Kolbe, pray for us. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Jesus is King.